This episode is part of our ongoing series with Queen's University Belfast, where we have the chance to sit down with an interesting student, professor or graduate once a month to hear and share their story. To find out more and see the other episodes as part of this series, please visit bestofbelfast.org forward slash Queen's. Today's episode is with Professor John Barry, the co-director of the Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action at Queen's and the co-chair of the Belfast Climate Commission. He's also a recovering politician, public servant, electric car driving, foldable bicycle riding activist himself, as well as a lover of the Lorax by Dr. Zeus. But I will let John tell you more about that himself in just a moment. In today's episode, we talk all about his origin story as a climate activist, why we have the wrong end of the stick when it comes to climate change, what the economy is actually for, a question I've never even thought about myself with a very interesting answer, some of the wisdom of Dr. Zeus, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, and so much more when it comes to some of these issues, and most importantly, what you and I can do to take meaningful action. Thanks so much for being here, and I really hope that you enjoy. John, we to yeah. hear this. There you, you do. You're you a are. prophet, right? Uh-huh. So I made, the, I made this realization because... My daughter's dairy intolerant. Ah, okay. So we're an oat milk family now. Right. So, and I was up and I was like, you know what? I want to make porridge in the saucepan because I usually do it in the microwave, uh-huh. right? And so I was like, you know what? I don't know how the oat milk would handle it. I'll just use water. And I used water. And as soon as I tasted it, it took me back to my granny's porridge ah, there you go. whenever I was about five uh-huh. and it was pure nostalgia to the point where I automatically found myself reaching uh-huh. for the salt uh-huh. shaker and, uh-huh. I, and since then the last four times uh-huh. I've had porridge for the last two weeks it's been uh-huh. water salty uh-huh. disgusting but I love it so whenever you watch Ratatouille with your child and there's that scene in Ratatouille <laughs> where Elon whatever his name is oh. Uh, the, the the baddie in it is transported back to his childhood. There yeah. you go. You've got an equivalent to tell your child. Absolutely. I'll be like, oh, my granny salty porridge. That's the way it is. <laughs> so thanks for being here. My pleasure. Welcome to the show. The place I'd like to start, slightly different to what I usually do. I usually kind of go back into your origin story and go through childhood. And Did you enjoy school and oh. all the hero's journey sort of stuff? But I thought we'd just get our teeth into it. Tell me about The Lorax and why it's your favourite book. So The Lorax, by which I mean the original Dr. Zeus one from the 1960s, not the more recent uh-huh. one that was done by Disney, in terms of it's a better, you know, cartoon, is that The Lorax encapsulates quite a lot of my politics, uh, my views about the world, <laughs> who, you know, who cares for the trees, who speaks for the trees. Mm. A lot of my work, both as an academic and as a political activist, is around those parts of the world that are uh, can't speak for themselves, animals, nature, and so on. So the Lorax really brings out the importance of paying attention to the, uh, the dumb world in, in the proper sense of the term. It can't speak for itself. But also, if you watch the, the, uh, or read the story, and the story is good as well as the movie, it really is a kind of an anti-capitalist story in the sense that uh, part of the Lorax talks about needs, the production and the, 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 the detrimental environmental impact of the onceler, and of course once, and it's not going to be sustainable, so you do it once <laughs> and it's gone. So the onceler sets up uh, a factory using uh, the truffle trees 
and unsustainably chops them all down to make needs which stand in for these useless consumer goods. And so the story is this once beautiful landscape that the Lorax looked after, the Wunzler moves in, chops down all the trees, destroys the, the earth, the, you know, uh, pollutes the river courses, and we end up with where we're at now, if you like, mm-hmm. in society. Mm-hmm. This degraded environment of living through the sixth great mass extinction, climate breakdown, and so on. So the Lorax, in a way, anticipated that way, way back in the 1960s. Yeah. In the way prophetic Dr. Seuss often does. <laughs> Absolutely. Horton, here's a who, I'm not quite sure of. But definitely, the, <laughs> but definitely the, the Lorax has it all going on. Yeah. And so, you know, it's obviously a question that I asked you before you came today. What's your favorite book? You said the Lorax. And so I always just do a quick kind of Google and Wikipedia. I had no idea that the book was banned. Yeah. That's so crazy. Uh, well, you could see in the context, Vicky, of North America, I think Dr. Zeus himself was Canadian, but its biggest market was in America. It, it was seen as an anti-capitalist, anti-consumer, crazy. environmentalist, kind of hippie. We go back to the 1960s, but it does it such a, such a gentle, non-judgmental um, way and simply saying, this is what's going to happen if we treat the earth badly. Well, guess what? Yeah. Bad shit's going to happen. Yeah. We're going to run out of clean air. We're not going to have decent water. We won't have any resources. And that's what we're facing now yeah. on a planetary scale. Yeah. And interestingly, it was, you know, uh, and this is Wikipedia, so you got to take this with whatever pinch of salt you want. Not salty porridge, but a pinch of salt. They said, you know, it was kind of shut down by like, because it was seen as anti-logging. And like big logging had a problem with it. And I was like, <laughs> My goodness, it, in some ways it's refreshing to see that like some of the things we're bumping up against today, it's not necessarily new. Yeah. That both encourages me and terrifies me uh, for different reasons. But as someone who's been in this space for a while, you've seen in some ways media shift mm. or perceive to maybe have shifted in a very more positive and open way to climate and we're all very woke now and everybody wants to do this and don't look up and blah, 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 blah. But do you think that the climate issue really gets the time of day that it needs or is represented in the way that it should be? Well, absolutely not. Are we in a better place now than we were 10 years ago? Absolutely. We still can't talk about climate breakdown. When have you ever heard the planetary emergency, a planetary crisis as the language? Climate change is about as far as we can go. (laughs) But climate change is a bit like calling uh, an invading army unwelcome guests. (laughs) It's just singularly inappropriate for what we're we're facing. So things are moving. And to that, I would credit three, two individuals and one group. The two individuals would be Greta Thunberg. And the youth strike for climate movement that she helped create. David Attenborough at the other end of the age spectrum. So Dave is the big one I think of. You know, and and that's the the, the Blue Planet and all those documentaries and his leadership he's shown, I think, has really helped shift the dial. But I also think groups like Extinction Rebellion, they, you know, have definitely put on the public consciousness and more laterally, I'd say, insulate Britain, another fairly radical. I'm not saying people have to agree with their tactics and so on. But they have put this issue on the agenda. So we've shifted the dial. But in a way, now we're at the stage in terms of what's often called the Kubler-Ross change curve. Okay. And for those of you listeners who don't know this, it's a psychological mapping of human reactions to often 
um, shocking news, a death in the family, a serious diagnosis, or the realization that we are rivet popping the life supporting system of the planet. <laughs> Our first reaction is denial and shock. Yeah. It can't be happening. Uh-huh. Then it's anger. Why is this happening? You know, who's doing it and so on. Then often the, 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 the course of this is that you go into a slough of depression when you begin to realize how bad things are. And then it's a case of, right, what are we going to do? Roll up our sleeves and let's go to work on fixing this. Now, everybody's at a different stage on this cycle. We've got quite a lot of climate deniers, ergo people like Sammy Wilson. We've also got people who are very angry about the climate, ergo Sammy Wilson as well, in terms of that gammon-faced kind of anger against, uh, you know, climate um, issues. And then my own personal daily uh, routine, I could go through all of these stages on the same day, shock, denial, anger, depression, and come out then with some sense of doing something. And so it's useful for people when they first come across, whether it's the science or media commentary about climate and ecological issues, obviously satisfy themselves. Uh, please do go beyond Wikipedia. It's, it's okay as a starting point, folks. But yeah, it's okay to, for a background check in uh, yeah, the Lorax. But actually, not, not to have a, a completely informed uh, view on, on, on these existential issues. And then to see, well, where are you on this journey? Where is your family, your community? And something that I've had to do for the first time ever, Matt, this year, I've now put trigger warnings on my modules at the university Mm -hmm. because I realize uh, belatedly that I've been so used to reading these apocalyptic images of the future, the intergovernment panel on climate change, you know, millions of climate change refugees as a result of desertification, you know, sea level rises, that's become kind of inured. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to what happened, I think, journalists and the population during the conflict here, where it wasn't murders anymore, it's another statistic. You just get so used to it that you begin to lose the emotional resonance of what it is that you're talking about. So I've now rectified that. And so now on the modules that I teach, I just alert students to monitor their own emotional reaction. Because when I talk as an academic about future generations, they're sitting in front of me. Mm. You know, the, the world that I'm describing and the work that I do on climate and ecological issues is the world that these young people and their children and grandchildren, if they decide and look enough to have them, this is the world that they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, inherit. And it does mean for me, though, and I have spoken publicly about this, and it's not something academics do often enough, is that I'm motivated as much as a parent of two children. Yeah that I cannot divorce my own emotional reaction and love and concern and sometimes terror that I feel for my kids' future when I'm long gone about what it is that I'm doing now with the privilege I have as an academic and all that comes with that. So for me, a lot of my work in the last couple of years is really partly motivated by a parent, an academic and an activist. And so I was Jennifer Lawrence before she was in uh, Don't Look Up. Would you have, uh, would the Lorax have done the rounds at the bedtime story circuit? The Lorax is still there as the uh, the story that, uh, in fact, I have an original copy of the Lorax book from nice. the 1960s and Come so on. on. It's a family heirloom now. Yeah, it is. And in fact, in fact, everything that I'm going to say in the next whatever minutes we're going to be on, you can just gently let my southern Dublin tones wash over <laughs> you and fade off and do something. Go and read the Lorax because it's all there. Yeah, yeah. Did you come across it as an adult or a kid? As an adult. Nice. It's a very North American 
American phenomenon. Um, and I just discovered it. I forget how. Yeah. I must have come across it on some search a few years ago. And I was blown away by this half hour children's cartoon just encapsulated almost everything. Yeah. That I had spent decades learning. Now, don't get me wrong. The Lorax is not going to give you all the answers, but it, <laughs> it does encapsulate. And it's kind of up there with uh, another kind of um, moment I had like that, but it's more of a musical one, is Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, mm. from the 1970s. Again, at the birth of ecological consciousness. And a lot of the songs in that are talking about the issues that have now begun to come to pass in yeah. many ways. So the Lorax and Marvin Gaye and you're sorted and a nice bottle of organic locally brewed beer. <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds like a great evening. <laughs> what set you on the path? What uh, awoken or awakened, sorry, your ecological conscience? Uh, it was a combination of being exploited by McDonald's in the <laughs> 1980s as a student and realising uh, with horror um, the way in which the company at that stage, again, I don't know whether they're still probably are uh, involved in clear felling, you know, tropical rainforest in South America to grow uh, beef uh, and discovering with horror that, you know, what happens in the uh, Latin American jungle does matter to what happens in Ireland in terms of the regulation of the global climate system. I've always been on the left. Uh, I would describe myself as a Marxist in terms of the importance of class, of understanding production, who owns our resources in society. So I was motivated by that sense of social justice, not least because I'm from a working class background in North Dublin. You ever see the film The Commitments? That's where I'm from. Nice. Those great working class reservations on the outskirts of Dublin. When I went to university, uh, my community had about 20% unemployment, uh, awash with heroin, Lots of major problems. And I was the only person in my whole estate to go to university. And yet I wasn't the smartest in my class. So I often wondered what was going on in Irish society that meant your ability to pay, mm -hmm. not your academic ability to determine whether or not you went on to university. I've always had this uh, chip on my shoulder. Well, I'm actually balanced. I've got a chip on both shoulders. <laughs> so there's always been that sense of burning injustice. Yeah. Based on those particularly class experiences of, of being a working class kid and feeling uh, like an imposter at university, even when I became an academic, my accent is not the usual one you would hear in England where I started my academic career. But it's always been that sense of there's a connection between the exploitation of people and the exploitation of, of nature. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like in the late 1980s and beginning to realize what we would now call climate change and the ecological problem was much more in my consciousness uh, as a student in Dublin in the 1980s. Yeah. Want to zoom in on a little bit because I think it's interesting. Why do you think you ended up going to uni when those around you did not? The simple reason was my dad was a factory worker and he had an accident at work, which meant for uh, that year his income declined, which meant I was below the threshold wow. to get a one-year grant to go to university. That was the, the major financial reason because, you know, my parents couldn't afford to send me and, and, and pay the fees. I ended up having to, to work through college like a lot of, a lot of university students do. Um, so for me, it was that coupled with the fact that I all, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Sure. And university looked like a, a pretty interesting place to go, even though I knew I'd be going on my own mm -hmm. because there wasn't many other members of my class that I, uh, from my secondary school that went, that went on. So it was a combination. I'm not really knowing what to do. Always been a bit mouthy, always really interested in, you know, 
typical boys things, loved Lord of the Rings, read it cover to cover four or five times, even read the Silmarillion for those geeks out there. That, ahead, and that's the John. Bible of Middle Earth Go and so ahead. on. Wow. So all of that stuff, um, wanting to find the place then to go and, you know, it broadened my mind. Yeah. So university yeah. was perfect. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, kind of like in hindsight, like looking at even something like Lord of the Rings, which I think for most people of a certain generation is embedded into their DNA. You know, even the idea of the Ents, yeah. like the talking trees and yeah. all, you're like, and uh-huh. you know, the, the horrific deforestation that took place in the two towers or the twin towers, I always yeah. get confused because of 9-11, I can't actually yeah. remember what the actual title is, uh-huh. uh, you know, but just the burning of the forest yeah. and that's a big part of the plot and you're like, wow, interesting. Yeah. Uh, when I used to have a t-shirt that had something like, the planet's in crisis, time for an Ent moot. <laughs> Where, where, where's Treebeard when we need them? So maybe there's kind of a Treebeard Lorax thing yeah, going you know, on here. Yeah, there's, there's, you know? there's something. You need to go away and do some deep work on that to try to bridge the two together, definitely. Uh, take us back to McDonald's. Was that the first time your consciousness spewed into radical action? Absolutely. It was, yeah. And, and it was the, the simple... Uh, fact, because my dad was a big trade unionist, he was, I always remember in the 1970s, he was on strike probably more often than he was in work. And so it was an important issue, collective bargaining by workers if they didn't, weren't getting their, you know, wages uh, and their paying conditions and their rights uh, recorded, there was recourse to trade union action. But I noticed when I became a member of the McDonald's team, as they called them back then, <laughs> that in the induction video, we were given a very strong message about not joining a union. Because McDonald's is such a great employer, why would you want another boss? Remember that word, a union boss, taking money from you and so on. And this uh, irked me, to say the least, given that I'd grown up with a very positive attitude to trade unions. So what did I do? I bravely, and thank goodness I didn't sign my name to it, I put up a notice in the staff common room which said, are you interested in joining a union? Please meet up, I forget, in some pub and so on. Well... All hell broke loose. Really? Senior management found out about this. They were asking who uh, put this up and so on. Thankfully, nobody seen me put it up. And they brought in people, I think, from England about what was going on with their trade union problems. And I just realized then that these were a bunch of bastards. (laughs) You know, what is wrong with allowing collective bargaining for workers on low pay, most of us were students. Sure. Um, we were grateful for the job. You know, we, we paid a pittance, of course, and having to wear those. Back in them days, they were horrible kind of sailor suits. Oh, yeah. Those listeners may remember back in the 80s, they were <laughs> awful, like uh, extras out of South Pacific or something. So it's bad enough having to wear the uniform, then get low pay, and then to be told you couldn't organise collectively. Now, needless to say, a union was not organised at uh, McDonald's in O'Connell Street in Dublin. That's where I worked. But it left me with a very strong sense that this is a system of oppression. And I began to notice working at McDonald's because I was learning about sociology and class distinctions and the vision of labor within workplaces that McDonald's was organized back then. I don't know if it's different now. There was like 10 different grades of people, each paid slightly better than the other. And the job of the person paid better was to monitor and, in other words, make the person below them more productive. Mm. And I thought it was a fantastically clever way of dividing the workforce. Wow. I also then, as I, I think I may have mentioned in, in, in one of the notes I sent you beforehand, when I left McDonald's, I think it was 1986, 87, uh, and I was 
full on radicalized at this stage, even though I, I still needed the money, even though I really detested the, the, the company itself and never mind the horrendous human, uh, animal rights abuses in terms of the, the product that they served. I remember stripping off naked on a Saturday night in O'Connell Street McDonald's in Dublin on my last shift and making what I thought was a speech, but of course it was to a drunken horde, because that's the thing. You went to McDonald's at 11 o'clock at night after the pub threw you out. So me trying to explain to people about the Costa Rican rainforest and so on, and then in a kind of a Benny Hill style, so have the music of Benny Hill, <laughs> going around in your mind as I explain this, being chased. If you ever go into McDonald's on O'Connell Street, it's over three floors, and I was chased by the security guards up and down the stairs until eventually they caught me and told me to never to darken the doors again. <laughs> uh, so that was my one kind of pathetic, comical act of defiance where I kept silent about the trade union stuff, but I came out about the deforestation um, and have never darkened. Actually, I've never darkened the door of O'Connell Street, McDonald's in Dublin. Come not, on. Not because of fear, just because I have no interest because I'm a vegan. And oh, OK, now they have the, that burger. I'm not going to advertise them. <laughs> yeah, that one that you see plastered around everywhere. And then how very quickly the other fast food chains follow suit very, very quickly. I mean, how, how does something like that make you feel? Because on one hand, with a certain monocle lens you could look at it you could say oh wow look like the world's changing and then on the cynical monocle you put on the other eye you can be like well they're just playing the trends and trying to make money which is what big business Uh, always does no i mean it's more on the latter it's greenwashing it's it's you know it's saying one thing but actually doing another it's a kind of a virtue signaling at, at a corporate level. Look how we're woke in terms of moving in, uh, you know, embracing veganuary and so on. Don't get me wrong. I mean, all these things are positive, but these individual actions, either by um, individual citizens or indeed companies themselves, miss the point. We need major structural changes in our economic system, the energy system, our food system, and so on. So while I think it's a good um, move and there's a good opportunity to use what it is these companies are doing uh, in terms of moving in a more sustainable, in inverted commas, direction, it is to call them out and to say, well, we really do need to start seriously considering moving towards a plant-based diet as a society, mm. not just in terms of your individual choice of, of junk food or at the French call it malbouffe. Everything, everything always sounds better in, in French. Um, so for me, Does that's that mean a, bad beef ba- or something. B- malbouffe, I think it means crap food, junk, <laughs> junk, junk food, uh, you know, and so on. Um, so I, I do think that. We need to be uh, identifying and have our antennae attuned to greenwashing, virtue signaling, even amongst ourselves. Of course. And it's always the reasons why, particularly in a country like Northern Ireland, how often you get particularly very strong Christians who are really against gay rights or against abortion. When actually we read the Bible, the Bible has more to say about injustice Mm. and people not having their needs met. Where do we see these same Christians then talking about poverty and inequality or the fact that Northern Ireland has some of the highest rates of fuel poverty in in Europe? So I've always been attuned to hypocrisy. Uh, not that I've been immune to it myself as a recovering politician, as you know, I was a Green Party <laughs> councillor for, for seven years and co-leader of the Green Party for a while. And that job uh, almost invariably draws you into uh, realms of, of, of hypocrisy. But it is about saying that we need to take a long, cold look at ourselves as a species, that the science is pretty clear. We are going in entirely the wrong direction 
in terms of trying to create a habitable, sustainable planet for our kids mm-hmm. and, and those who come after it. That's what's at stake. The earth is not in peril. It does kind of annoy me when you see these signs, oh, save the planet and so on. The planet has seen five other great mass extinctions where up to 90% of all life just disappeared. The one we know, of, of course, is the dinosaurs. You know, the meteor comes in, kills them off. So the planet is not in, in danger. What is in danger is a habitable world for human beings. That's mm. the real issue. Uh, and I'm not, big, I'm not seeing the determined action that we probably need on, on that as of yet. So you talk about virtue signaling. Like you, what you are, what I'm inferring by that is that by when I go to an unnamed supermarket to buy my food and I choose to buy the tomatoes that aren't in the plastic packaging and I feel really good about myself, you're telling me that that's not enough to change the world? But it is an important point. I would never um, criticize those individual actions. I mean, I'm a classic example, but I can afford it. And there's an issue of affordability of some of these positive, sustainable choices. We can't all go to the farm shop. And- I, I get a weekly delivery of organic food from our local farmer in Helens Bay. That is outside the price range of most people. I have an electric car that's charging around the corner as we speak. Again, outside the realms of most people's budget. I have a fold-up bicycle, little Brompton, cost a thousand pounds that I use to get around the city, and so on. again outside the individual's budget. And that's why, while we do need the, the, these kind of pioneering individual actions, I, I see them as kind of commitment devices. So when ah. you buy when you buy organic and okay. non plastic packaged materials, you're reminding yourself that you'd like your values and your actions to be in alignment. Mm-hmm. I think most people, if you explain to them, they want to have the local organic, you know, sustainable product. They just don't have the means to do it. Sure. But so when those of us who do have the means, and I, I do believe in the importance of using privilege appropriately. Mm-hmm well-paid academic with some status in society, we should be leading on this because we have the economic security and some degree of trust in our populations in terms of getting these ideas out there. So I certainly wouldn't, um, you know, say that they are useless, but they are insufficient. We need both these individual actions and collective actions demanding, for those who are listening, we're three months out from an assembly election. I'm not going to tell you which party to vote for. But when a prospective MLA rocks up at your door looking for your vote, and if these issues we're talking about here mean anything to you, ask them, what are you and your party going to do to make sure Northern Ireland is playing its part, that we're creating a world that, as I say, is safe and sustainable for our kids and so on? The, you know, if, that's, if these issues matter to you, yeah. we should be demanding better of our politicians I want to get there. I feel like it's like blue balls at the minute where we're like, we're skirting around the big issue of like, what are some of the big things we want to do? There's just one more thing I want to cover. And I really, really like what you said about the commitment device. Was that the term you used? Yeah. Really, really enjoyed that. Like I think because in some, in some sense, there's a lot of self-signaling that goes on that can be positive and reinforcing there. And I just back to O'Connell Street in the McDonald's, you putting up the leaflet. Like how much small activity like that and then even the response that it provoked in some ways is maybe like training you and doubling down or fanning a flame in some part of your personality that doesn't mind to stick out like a sore thumb or doesn't mind to be a rebel or whatever way you want to phrase it that's key you've gone on a bit of a journey to be comfortable to stand out and that's important yeah I mean it absolutely is and to have the courage of your convictions is easy to say 
but you want a neck like a jockey's bollocks to get certainly get involved in politics and to say some things that are unpalatable where you're as welcome as a fart in a spacesuit. Yeah. I mean, to move from the Lorax to, you know, the emperor has no clothes. I mean, it's amazing the wisdom we have in these children's books and fairy mm. tales. I mean, that's what I feel we're at, at this moment in human history, whether it's in the academy and our policy and political community, even in the media in particular, there is a sense of the emperor has no clothes. And that's why I like Greta Thunberg. She literally is the person, because particularly because she's on the Asperger's, the, you know, the spectrum, they cannot stand ambiguity and bullshit. Yeah. The science says this, why aren't you doing it? And yeah. that childlike simplicity, I think, is always really useful as a place to start. So even in my own teaching and indeed a lot of my academic work, because I'm a post-growth heterodox economist, I don't believe in endless economic growth. What we, I, I want, you know, public health. I want, you know, people to, to be flourishing. But to have this idea of endless economic growth, yes, most people don't even know what it means. So we need to start our, our own education. It's to ask, what is the economy for? What is the economy for? Now, last time I looked, the economy is there to serve human beings and our needs and our interests. You look at the modern capitalist, hyper-globalized, neoliberal, precariously employed uh, workforce. We are serving the economy. Mm. This is the truth of the matrix. Yeah. You know, take the red pill and wake up and see that actually we've created a system of exploitation where we actually collude in our own system of exploitation mm. and, and have forgotten the economy is there to meet human needs. The state needs to be there to regulate the economy to serve human needs. And there can be a variety of ways in which we can, we can do that. I think we've forgotten that we live in societies with economies and not in economies with a bit of society at the weekend and after five o'clock. Yeah. That's a major challenge and, and a way of, of thinking. But that to me is like the childlike simplicity of asking what is the economy for? Mm. What is the economy? Why is it that the unpaid work of mostly women, although it's getting more gender equal and looking after our old folk, looking after our parents, looking after our, our, our young you know, children, that is hard work. Mm. But it never appears on, you know, John Campbell, the BBC economics correspondent across the way. When was the last time we heard a BBC economics report saying, oh, the, or the unpaid work of, of people in Northern Ireland increased by X amount. We have the metrics. We can calculate this. What we value is formally paid employment mm -hmm. and not work. And that's an issue that we need to start considering. Why is it that we never ask a corporate executive officer and the company that he or she works for, ask that person, what is it worth to your company that you're toilet trained? Mm-hmm. Or that you can speak the language in which you do business. That's your native language. Those skills of being toilet trained and speaking the language that your native tongue was taught literally at your mother or father's knee. Yeah. That is valuable skills and life skills. And yet we never consider that as part of the economic system. Yet without that, the whole thing doesn't work. And so for me, it's about getting back to basics. And while I love that is because then you'll have the corporate world kind of throwing the rattle out of the pram and throwing their hands up and saying like, this next generation of workers, they can't do X, they can't do Y, they can't focus. This is terrible. This is disgusting. You're like, well, in some ways, it's just the fruit of the yeah. seeds that were sown, you yeah. know? No, absolutely. I mean, this is where, you know, we need to see that we've gone too far in the pendulum to, in, in terms of globalization. 
So for me, we need to start relocalizing our food and energy systems in particular. We have serious problems now with energy prices being so high. And part of that problem is that we're importing so much of our gas and oil. So we need to relocalize our energy system, which is why we have abundant sources of geothermal, wind and wave and so on. On this island, we could be a net energy exporter. That's one thing. The coast in and of itself. And we're an island, for goodness sake. When you go and stand there and you look at it, you just say, whoa. And I could show you wind maps or you can find them for those listening on the internet a wind map of the world and some of the most consistent energy resources of offshore wind is between Galway Bay and the Outer Hebrides (laughs) you know both Scotland and the island of Ireland in particular could be net green energy exporters that now there's lots of technical issues of offshore and so on but that's the type of imagination and positivity we need because to go back to what I was saying earlier is that for a lot of people when they're on that you know, Kubler-Ross cycle, they can get very depressed and, and say, oh, my God, what can I do? That individualized response. This is a really hopeful time to be alive. Mm. It's replete with positive opportunities, but they will not come about by simply buying solar panels, buying an electric car or getting a green mortgage. Positive <laughs> those these are. It will be, in my own view, it will be. The type of mobilization we've seen about the youth strike for climate, extinction rebellion, using your voice in voting. Citizens need to stand up and stand out. They need to start demanding a lot better. The equivalent of what we're facing now, Matt, is wartime mobilization. Yeah. You know, most listeners probably don't know, but Belfast City Council declared a climate and ecological emergency in October 2019. The Northern Ireland Assembly, when it got back after three years in hiatus in February 2020, it declared a climate and ecological emergency. Westminster declared one in May 2019. The Irish Doll did it a week later. Work that we're doing uh, in the Place-Based Climate Action Network that I am involved in and the Belfast Climate Commission, we reckon that across the UK, about 80% of all local councils have declared these emergencies. But then there's a big WTF Question mark. What does that mean? There's no yeah. people even know. And that's what I mean. If, if it is really an emergency, the pandemic is, is what a real emergency looks like. Yes. Massive changes in how we work, social distancing, washing our hands and all the rest of it. And are, can I just say, I don't have a figure, but, oh, there's no money for anything. Oh, by the way, here's 20 billion gazillion squillion dollars to throw with this one thing and you're like oh so it can be used well, for something let, <laughs> let, 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 let me nail this other myth that we have that there isn't a magic money tree as uh, former Prime Minister Theresa May said there is a magic money tree a government like the UK that issues its own sovereign currency I'm going to say this really really slowly folks so it sinks in and it's going to sound counterintuitive but trust me I'm a professor The UK government can never run out of money it issues itself. The only real constraints in an economy like Britain is not the finance, it's the real material assets, the labour, the land, the capital, the technology. They are the only limits of our economy. And it was nothing short of being revelatory that Rishi Sunak and a a right-wing conservative government has had to initiate almost quasi-socialist policies in order to deal with the pandemic. Getting into debt, as we have done, is not an issue, folks. Because think about it. Logically, if the public sector is going into debt, it means that the non-public sector is in surplus. 
That's the first thing. We never, you never really get that in the media. So somebody is benefiting, the private sector. We as citizens are benefiting if the public sector going into to debt. We only paid in Britain the debt incurred in the Second World War sometime in the late 1980s or 90s. Mm-hmm. So we have examples that debt-based financing, of course, there are limits. We've got to be careful of inflation and so on. But in principle, there is no reason why the UK government cannot initiate a massive retrofitting program for all the housing stock in Britain, create hundreds of thousands of jobs, take people out of fuel poverty, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, you know, start putting heat pumps into people's houses, you know, you know, having more hydrogen buses on our public transportation. We have a massive green investment, you know, uh, you know, program funded by the Bank of England. And all of this is possible. The only thing stopping it is ideology. Mm-hmm. That's all that's stopping it. So there is no monetary reason why we can't do these things. They're political. They're also for many people. And I encourage you for those listening to satisfy yourself. Look up modern monetary theory and the book by Stephanie Kelton called The Deficit Myth. Just to satisfy yourself as to what I said sounds counterintuitive, but actually it is the case that a sovereign currency issuing government like the UK can spend as much as it wants. And it's really sad to think that already the drumbeat of austerity is starting to be sounded now in in London as we come out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, This is for my own personal curiosity. You can probably give me some tight academic theoretical language that I can then go away and research this myself. What do you call a system or a philosophy or a principle, or I'm not even sure what I'm trying to describe, we'll do it through story. Okay, there's one example where I'm a business owner and I go out into the world to try to make as much money as possible for me, okay? Scenario two is I'm a businessman, I go out into the world and I want to make lots of money to employ as many people as possible to benefit the society and the community around me. What is that? Or how can I read a book or find out more about that world? Well, one is you've described a kind of your typical free market capitalist, entrepreneurial, brave Richard Branson, Alan Sugar, that kind of entrepreneurial, I'm going to win, which is, of course, a dominant cultural trope. We even have, you know, programs devoted to that. The other one is you can call it social democracy, Mm -hmm. a kind of a Keynesian approach where it's a much more about... um, focusing on full employment rather than simply profits. Okay. And that used to be the older capitalist system after the Second World War, yeah. where even in America there was a full employment act. In Britain after the Second World War with the welfare state, the government's policy was that it was full male employment given the sexist times that were there. So the idea wasn't to maximize profits, mm-hmm. which is the first model you described. It was to maximize employment. Mm-hmm. Which means that you will make profits, but probably not as much as you would under the first system. And they're very two different models where you're kind of valuing the human element in the economy as opposed to the, you know, profit making. Because to make more profits often is about cutting labor. And here's the other, you know, perverse element of the system we now live in. The more unemployment you have, it's functional to, to suppress wages, because you can go then, if you're an employer and your employee says, oh, pay me more money, ah, go out and join the rest of them. So there is a you know, perverse logic that like, that system becomes self-replicating. It's like what you see with care assistance. And look at the way in which we pay you know, so little money, this precarious work. 
I mean, the, the modern economy we have, and it's a lovely line, not from me, but from Naomi Klein, the great Canadian writer and activist. She says, our current system is the dig and gig economy. Mm-hmm. By dig, she means it's, it's an extractivist, linear, unsustainable system where we take, make and throw away plastics, the destruction that we find in oil production and coal, that fossil fuel economy is this really dig extractivist economy. The gig economy speaks for itself. The precarious single zero hours, non-unionized workforces that we have. And ultimately what we need to get to is away from the dig and gig economy is the care and repair, where we're valuing care for each other, whether it's, you know, you talked about there in terms of care for elderly people or others or care for our children or indeed even care for, you know, one another and the next generation that comes along. And the repair refers to the fact that we're going to have to fix a lot of our broken world. A lot of our ecosystems are degraded. You know, hedgerows are going to have to be replanted. We're going to have to re-wet bogs, going to clean up our rivers, take all that plastic crap Mm. out of our oceans. There's a lot of work to be done. But the issue is, under the current capitalist system, this work is not profitable. But So there's your, 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 your takeaway line from the dig and gig to the care and repair. Yeah. And the reason why I think I subconsciously was going down this rabbit hole is because whenever you were talking about how uh, the money tree, in a way, is it can never run out. And I think there's this attitude, and there's this attitude in my own skull, and this is where the click kind of just happened for me, where... If I imagine, you know, the government takes, I'd say, 100 million for an arbitrary term to invest in climate action. I imagine that that's just like being thrown into the abyss. And I never made the connection that, well, I mean, someone's going to have to work those jobs. And actually, these are going to create like thousands of new jobs that people can then go into that will then pay for their rent, that will then pay for their shopping, that will then da 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 da. So it's like, it's really also a reinvestment into society. It well. is. And it's a really, you, you've got a really good way of putting it. It's about looking at the real assets in society, the people, the land, the, the capital, the technology. And I could give you another example uh, through a story is to show you that the real focus should be on the physical assets and not the money. So the story is that a German tourist goes to a, a Greek taverna Uh, looking to rent a room, that they have rooms, but says, listen, I want to check out the room first, but I'm going to put 100 euro down. I'm going to go up and check the room. So the owner of the taverna says, yeah, grand. So the German tourist goes on up. The Greek owner of the taverna says, well, I owe the farmer a few bob for, you know, some uh, some groceries I bought off him. So goes to the farmer, gives the farmer the 100 euro. The farmer says, thanks very much, and then realizes, oh, I've got a massive tab in the pub. Looks like it's 100 euros as well. Goes to the pub, gives the 100 euros to the barman. The barman says, oh, actually, yeah, I remember I got really hammered last week and I didn't want to go home and I stayed over at your man's taverna. So he goes back to the original guy with the taverna and gives the 100 euro back to him. So all debts are paid off. Uh-huh. The German tourist comes down and Hans says, listen, lovely, but it's not for us. Takes his 100 euro and goes off. Okay. That is the modern way money works. Mm. Money is not the key issue. So, yes, there are, you know, the technical issues we talk about death and, and interest and, and, and so on. But in a nutshell, I hope that story brings home that what really matters is the payment of debts based upon, you know, the physical assets of what people have exchanged and so on. Yeah. That's all money should be. Yeah. It is not a limiting factor. Yeah. The limiting factor is the real human ingenuity we have 
the amount of hours in a day that people can work and be excited and be creative, the amount of land we can grow food or create energy. It's an asset-based view mm-hmm. of our economic system. And to move us away from this fixation, oh, there isn't any money. Mm-hmm. Money is not the issue. The state can spend as much as it wants. It can never run out of its own money yeah. that it's created itself. Yeah. And I think we're only at the beginnings of understanding that here is a potential solution to a lot of the climate and ecological issues we talked about that we can, you know, start engaging in. So it's quite exciting. It's very challenging because even that would be striking people as counterintuitive. Oh, there's something wrong with that story. But so absolutely go and satisfy yourself Mm -hmm. as whether or not you believe it. Mm I do. I think that offers us one way of dealing with the climate crisis. Yeah, I think, you know, and this is about as far as I can go before I'm absolutely talking nonsense, okay? This is not my area at all. I'm not a finance guy. I'm not really into all that investment stuff. But I have heard someone lay out, and it was not in a in a positive or helpful way. It was like, you know, this is how you can make a lot of money sort of vibe. And they, they tried to make the point that, you know, the £10 you put in your bank account, in a way, is the bank then loans that out in like, seven different ways every single day but the 10 pound stays in your account you know and i that's what i mean i'm on the brink of my my level of understanding here but that was the first time i was like oh my goodness yeah i definitely have a very very inappropriate way of understanding what money actually is and how it works because in my head it's like in the piggy bank and it stays in my piggy bank and that's it yeah but in reality it's it's so much more no it isn't that's why Again, if people are looking for other books and, and so on to read, uh, David Graeber, a great anthropologist who passed away there recently, he has a great book on this called Debt, The First 10,000 Years. And he traces <laughs> the, the origins of money and why in our contemporary world, most of us have a completely mistaken view of money. Yeah. I'd also add, partly from my own academic research, most of us have a very mistaken view of economic growth. Mm-hmm. If you ask most ordinary people, they don't really know what it means. It's really important if you're an investment portfolio manager or you're a policymaker or a politician because growth is seen as vitality. It's a sign of the health of an economy. I think for most people, if we can show them, this is a lot of my academic work, is that we can provide jobs, education, healthcare without growth. I think they would be happy with that. It's only a a minority, those who are already rich Mm -hmm. and are making more money out of, you know, compound growth rates and so on. So that's the political issue. And I think that's why education is so important in terms of, you know, opening people's eyes to their own understanding. And I I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be so arrogant, just because I'm a professor at Queen's University, you have to believe everything I have to say. All of this is contestable knowledge. But, you know, that's the great thing with the internet. You can find out this information for your mm. for yourself. But education is power. Mm-hmm. Much like knowledge is power. So arm yourself. Yeah. This is nice. You, you've done a fantastic job of setting us up for what's next. I was going to ask you, you could do a lot of things and you have done a lot of things you know as you say you're a recovering politician uh, i see you here like looking at you like if we were to get the, the camera up you know you could lead like some sort of very um big climate podcast and have a big online audience you could do a hundred million different things why did you choose the path of an academic we've sort of covered that why did you stay 
And why have you and why do you continue to invest so much of your life and your energy because you're so deeply passionate about these issues in that vehicle or that medium of change? It's because it gives me an awful lot of autonomy. Um, while there are parts of the job, as most and most jobs that aren't particularly enjoyable, a lot of admin and all the rest of it, I can teach more or less what I like. Mm-hmm. I can research more or less what I what I like. And so that freedom and autonomy is really important to me. And I've never really had a plan for my academic career to kind of jump whatever grabs my interest and sure. I think is important. But I actually feel passionately that I'm a public servant. I am paid out of the public purse. I'm in a publicly funded university. And while it's right that I should be writing my peer-reviewed articles and doing my research, I think increasingly there is an onus and responsibility within academia more generally and universities in particular and professors like me especially. We have a duty at this moment of existential crisis in human civilization, in the planetary crisis that we're now experiencing, we have an obligation to step out, help our policymakers, help our local citizens. So like some academics, I wouldn't say everybody, but there are others like me who do an awful lot of public speaking that will go to community groups to try and talk whatever it is. You know, I give them talk in East Belfast and North and South and all over the place. And I'm more than happy if people, if they're listening to me, would like me to come and speak to your Rotary Club, which I've done, <laughs> or your next credit union meeting or a church-based group. I'm more than happy, you know, just give me a couple of weeks notice to go and and talk to you because I feel really important that the knowledge that I've benefited from and I've helped co-create over many decades, it's a gift to my community, mm-hmm. all the people that I think can benefit from it. And it's not enough to be like Gollum, oh, my precious, <laughs> and kind of keep that, um, yeah. you know, knowledge to yourself. So I think the Academy is a, a, a perfect platform to begin to get that knowledge out into the media, out into the public sector, the private sector, but particularly communities. I think citizens, that's where we need to start educating and and talking in a language people understand. One of the greatest difficulties that academics have, and most of us are not very good at it, is we speak in a language that's seen as technocratic, it's seen as condescending, we're talking down to people. We don't mean it like that. We just live in a world where these technical ways of speaking is our lingua franca. Yeah, it's the air you breathe. And so therefore we do need to have more people like me who at least, I think, modestly have the capacity to translate what we're talking about in a passionate way because, you know, the emotion and your presentation is as important as what it is that you're saying, but also to talk about that in a language uh, that people understand. So for me, the academy has been a perfect vehicle. It's not perfect. Mm -hmm. I would like to see, for example, Queens divest completely from fossil fuels. I'd like my own pension not to be invested in fossil fuels, both of which are not happening at present. I think there should be an obligation uh, much more mandatory in some respects. You know, that may sound very authoritarian. But I think given my sense of the crisis that we're in, we should be demanding senior academics to be giving a portion of their time over to community service. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas up until now, the academy has been probably more used to dealing with policymakers and dealing with businesses. I think we need to rebalance that and have a much greater focus on citizens, community groups, and indeed the media. And, you know, I've been involved in that. There are other colleagues uh, as well. And it's that freedom uh, to be able to do and, and, you know, having that academic freedom 
to engage in, in you know, researching and, you know, developing peer reviewed articles and, and, and reports and so on with with colleagues is, you know, really exciting. But really, it has to be uh, it's not for its own end. This is about empowering people. It's about knowledge to enlighten uh, so they can make more informed decisions, because I think people are only beginning to wake up to this issue. And unfortunately, you know, they're waking up now at a time when their go to place. I mean, only if it was Wikipedia, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, it's Facebook. And while they have their benefits, these are places where you will not get the information in a manner that I think will satisfy and give you warranted knowledge, whether it's on the vaccination or wearing masks or certainly not on issues of the climate and ecological emergency. So dip your toe into Twitter and Instagram and so on, but please do go to credible academic sites to try and find out what it is that the issue really is about. It's so funny. I bet you 10 years ago, you would never be recommending Wikipedia to people. You know, you'd be you'd be so happy that people would, were spending eight hours a day on Wikipedia in comparison just to the way things are now. While you're talking there, you know, I really like this idea of like service. I like this idea of how you need to give back to the community and you need to empower the community. And the reason why is because when you were speaking earlier, we were talking about the, the plastic packaging and my tomatoes, how that's good, but we need such big change in order to make this happen and i was just thinking like you know we really are talking about a social movement on the same level of what abolished slavery or women's rights or you know this needs to be a massive massive thing that happens and not just a little small individual isolated piece of action it absolutely is i mean what we're facing now is the epochal paradigm shift that happened in the movement of our societies from feudal rural societies to an industrial civilization. We're looking at a new industrial revolution in terms of how That's we make. Far better. It's a far better example. Uh, thank but, you. <laughs> but, 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 but the difference is and how to connect it to issues of, you know, anti-slavery and the suffragette movement is those type of citizen based movements that were a combination of a moral impetus and we've spoken, or at least I've spoken a lot about my own moral motivation being in part around my kids, you know, a concern for the for the beauty and the intrinsic value of the non-human world. It is about, you know, people suffering needlessly in our own societies from fuel poverty or the global injustice of those in the global south who are already living a horror that they didn't have any part in. That sense of injustice, I think, is the moral motivation. And that's what was behind, of course, the uh, abolition of slavery movement and the suffragettes, that sense of injustice. And I think we need to mobilise that and to see that, you know, that's the scale of the social movement that we need, is that people need to be demanding the ending of the fossil fuel industry in the same way that we demanded demanded the abolition of slavery. Mm. Fossil fuels are the modern slavery. You know, it is simply incompatible with a habitable world to continue to burn fossil fuels. In the same way, it was simply morally unconscionable to have a slavery system if you were back then a largely Christian society. And a lot of Christians were motivated in the abolition of slavery movement. So I think whether it's a new industrial revolution, channeling, you know, that sense of moral indignation and injustice that the world doesn't have to be like this, that the anti-slavery movement had, that's what we need to capture because I'm absolutely convinced there is no plug-and-play version of the future I'm describing. There is no app for this. Yeah. And while we need technology, I, for one, 
will not be putting my faith in Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, who seem to spend more time and energy in flying off in penis-shaped airships than actually devoting their attention and their considerable billions in making this planet, uh, uh, you know, a better place. We are going to need social mobilization. Technology will not save us. And that's why I think we're at a current really interesting moment in human history of two forms of passivity I see. And I see it in my students and sometimes I detect it in myself every day. On the one hand, we have an apocalyptic passivity where there are some and some very intelligent people, some climate scientists who say, that's it, it's too late, we're shagged. Yeah. You know, that it, whatever we do now, we've already baked in. Yeah, eat, drink, so much. and be merry. Yeah, for tomorrow we may die, as yeah. General Manley Hopkins yeah. said. So there's that sense of passivity, which is basically, it's too late, what's the point in doing anything? On the other hand, is an equally worrying uh, techno-optimism. Mm. We don't need to change capitalism. We don't need to change the way our world is. We're just going to basically have a biofuel to Hummer solution. We just take out the dirty fossil fuels and stick in clean green energy or hydrogen and bada bing, bada boom. Whereas I would say, well, maybe the problem is the Hummer. Yeah. Maybe you need to change the Hummer. Yeah. So between those two poles of passivity, of an apocalyptic version yeah. and a techno-optimistic, that's where we have hope. Yeah. Hope is not the same as optimism. Yeah. As Václav Havel, a wonderful Greek, oh, sorry, uh, Czech playwright and former president said, you know, optimism is the happy idea that's all going to work out Okay, it's the equivalent of what we say on this island. It'll be grand. Mm. There's that sense, oh, it'll all be fine. I'll be worrying about it. I think that's a really dangerous place to be. Hope is generated through agency mm. of actually doing something, giving a shit, getting angry, seeing the injustice. That will mobilize people. And that's what I see. Part of what I'm trying to do is to give people the knowledge my own kind of slant on it, which is a fairly left-wing, progressive stance. We're going to have to start bringing the state back in, you know, br- brushing off arguments about redistributing resources more, more equally, opening up a big conversation of a three-day working week, dethroning economic growth, start talking about regenerative mm-hmm. forms of economic systems, relocalizing our economic system, big, big issues. But these are the same issues that were spoken about in a different way in the, in the European Enlightenment mm-hmm. and the foundation of the Industrial Revolution. You know, if you were living in the early 18th century, you would have thought that rural-based Christian way of life based upon agriculture for the most part Maybe a bit of empire thrown in if you lived in in Britain or one of the emerging imperial powers. You thought that way of life was going to last forever. Sure. And yet within 100 years, that was revolutionary overturn. So that's the same kind of issue that what I'm saying to you here and now is that we are now looking at the end of the world as we know it. Mm pause for effect but that's okay yeah it's not the end of the world <laughs> this is not don't look up that's the end of the world we're talking about the end of the world as we know it and that start asking ourselves this question why is it that for many of us listening it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism mm-hmm. what i'm proposing is that capitalism is now incompatible with a habitable planet we have all the technologies we need folks we don't need to change anything in terms of developing new technologies We just need to change our economic systems of how we make things, how we transport things, and away from this, as I say, the pendulum has swung too far in terms of globalization, privatization, the state stepping back and so on. It doesn't have to be like this. So that's the question to ask ourselves. Why is it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism? 
And something I'd like to layer on top of that, and it actually goes back to, uh, you know, we've talked about Lord of the Rings, which is, uh, we'll say, the Quran. And then you have the Matrix, which is the gospel, right? There is a third type of passivity, and it's this just numb, passive state of consumption. And even if you meet Morpheus and you wake up and you have your moment, what's that character in the Matrix? I think his name's Cypher. Yeah. Where he he chooses to, to go, go back, back in. in. Yeah. And he's eating the steak and yeah. he says, do you know what? I know the steak isn't real, but you know what? It just tastes so good. Yeah. And I think there's a Cypher in, in all of us. You see it in yourself. Yeah. I see it in myself. Yeah. Where we know that something needs to happen. We know that immense action needs to take place. But actually, I'm kind of comfortable. Yeah. And actually, I have Netflix. And actually, I have this and I have that. And I can be, I can live in a Ready Player One world where it's just a dopamine wave all day. And actually, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. And for those who can afford to do that, of course, this is a luxury that not everybody can, can do. We can talk about Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and his idea of SOMA where Soma um, is the drug that is given to the proles, the working classes, to keep them happy. And consumerism is a kind of a drug. You know, it's a recognized psychological disorder now where people get into debt-based consumerism mm. when they're rocking up to Victoria Square to queue up for overnight to get the latest iPhone 26 and a half <laughs> or whatever it is. You know, these great cathedrals of consumerism yeah. are fantastic ways of distracting people. So th this is our modern version of bread and circuses. Mm -hmm is we have reality TV and we have bog off, buy one, get one free. Sure. This constant treadmill of consumerism, which is a very infantilizing experience. I mean, for normal functioning adults to be reduced to salivating, you know, toddlers who have no sense of, you know, delaying their gratification. I see it. I want it now. I'm going to get into debt to get it now. Rather than saving up your money, mm -hmm to get it and you, you'll enjoy it even more. So we've created this system whereby uh, consumerism, almost as a psychological disorder, is now functional for the system to work. Yeah, yeah. In other words, we need people to buy shit that they don't need to impress people they don't care about. That's Fight Club, which is a very good anti-consumer uh, movie, by the way. So we can actually see even our popular culture that is kind of... I love it. the scene in Fight Club where they're talking about the IKEA furniture. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> no, but, My it, goodness. but it does show that even... Also, it, like, like uh, the Lorax, so ahead of its time. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I mean, it really is. I mean, just really nailing... Sharp, razor sharp. And really naming, nailing it from a, a male perspective as well because yeah. often fashion and buying stuff is seen as a very female activity. Oh, no, no, no. Watch Fight Club and you begin to see how this yeah. is infected you know, most sections of our, our population. Now, in criticizing consumerism, which I've just done, I am not against consumption. Yeah. On the one hand, you have people engaging in those, in my view, suboptimal, copping out, eat, drink and be merry because I can do it. And at the same time, then we have people dying and having their lives compromised because they're not consuming enough. Mm. So now we're back to the redistribution yeah. uh, element. Um, but it is an issue we have to face uh, squarely, particularly now as we've just come out of the orgy of consumerism that used to be known as Christmas. Yeah. What now precedes it? Black Friday, and I cannot believe that that name is still used in the context of Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. so on, but that's the name that's you. And now Cyber Monday. 
Mm-hmm. These, you know, importations from America cathed- of getting cathedrals people. Cathedrals to big tech really now, yeah, isn't it? you know, a, and a you know, so it is about we need to start questioning that consumption mode of, of life, which is often, as I say, based upon debt, mm-hmm. people getting into debt, which then causes other types of, of problems. But while you can be anti-consumerism, which is an excess of unnecessary consumption, that is not to say that we don't need luxuries. We all need nice things in life. And it's not against consumption itself. Consumerism is the vice, mm-hmm. whereas consumption is a virtue. That's nice. That's very nice the way you tied that together. I like that. Um, let's get out of the rabbit hole. Tell me about your work at Queen's. So uh, I am... Profe- One sorry quick thing. The students that sit in your lectures, what do they study? So I teach um, low-carbon energy transitions on on one module at master's level. I also teach a final year undergraduate module called Earth, Energy, Ethics and Economy, Mm -hmm. the politics of unsustainability, which basically that's what I've been talking about. So what I've just given you there in the last 40 minutes. It's the 101. It's the 101 of – so any students listening, you've now done that module. You're (laughs) – come to my office and I'll give you the cert. Um, I also teach um, a first-year module called What is to be Done? So it's a first-year entry-level module in introducing these concepts. But what's interesting about that module is, and I think it's the only uh, module at the university, it may even be the only module on the island of Ireland, where as part of that, we have a mindfulness teacher in, in part to enable students to process some of the emotional reactions, some of the things that we're doing, but also to see that their uh, emotions and their daily lives and lifestyles should be seen as sites of reflection. So they're not just learning it cognitively, but actually saying, well, what's going on when I'm walking down the street and I'm seeing ads on the bus or yeah. when I'm in the pub having a, having a chat or, or whatever, that the, the topics we're teaching um, and we make an explicit attempt in that first year module are about your life. We're kind of giving you a field guide and the tools to understand your own life. And as you said earlier with the something, something, whatever cycle. It also helps to monitor your own emotions and how you respond to that. And that actually can help. You then can take that into the world and create some sort of change. Well, it is. I like to see that, you know, the Kubler-Ross cycle that you mentioned is is to get people to monitor that. And what we want to produce in all our modules, and I think this is common across all academics at, at Queen's and elsewhere, but certainly we have an explicit intent. We want to produce academic and, and citizen leaders People who can go out into the world, whether it's in business, in the public sector, private sector, that they're aware of what's going on. In, in that proper sense, they are woke. I mean, it's awful the way in which political correctness in the way that that was disparaged was a good term. The same way that woke simply means that you're awake and alive and you're aware of the biophysical realities of what's happening, whereas now it's viewed in a right-wing perspective as somehow that you are a dilettante, you're a guilty, educated, greeny middle class, that somehow you're part of the elite almost, that somehow woke has now become being a part of elite. Whereas I just it's see amazing it, how everything gets spun, oh, isn't it, it? It's the power of ideology. Like any label you can imagine right now, whether it's vaccinated or unvaccinated, vaccinated or woke or yeah it's all just spun yeah. to the point where you're like what do our words even mean anymore yeah well it's a form of intellectual laziness i mean human beings given our very heavily stimulated and saturated environment social media and others 
um, that we just look for simple labels yeah. as a way of just getting on with our lives. And that explains partly the low attention span most of us have where we're, we're doom scrolling on, <laughs> on, on Twitter or whatever it is. But certainly, you know, as an academic, my pedagogy and those of my colleagues are orientated by using real world examples for students. So we talk about fuel poverty. Sadly, many of our students, if they're living in the Holy Lands and so on, are living in crap accommodation. Yeah. So you can use that as a lived experience that when we're talking about climate breakdown and energy transition, it means the mould in the house that you're in or the heat in the street uh, and so on to make it real for people. And a fantastic way of doing this, although sometimes it can get very, very heated, is once you start talking about food and meat, oh my goodness, yeah. In all my 30 years as an academic where I've, I've taught feminism, abortion, global climate change, climate justice, the thing that gets students going, oh, yeah. don't take away my bacon butty. Yeah. How yeah. dare you? Or the other side, a very militant kind of, you know, plant-based perspective. Yeah, I was going to say, like, forget Protestant and Catholic. Like, you can it's, attack someone's that's the religion. New, that's the new, that's, 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 that's the new, you know, division. On both sides, oh, you know, no, it's it, wild. It, it, you, know? you know, it really is. The most cultish people you'll meet are people on the carnivore diet and really, really, really extreme plant-based, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a reason why abattoirs don't have glass walls. <laughs> I think of most of us, particularly those of us who don't live in an agricultural farming background, and most human beings on the planet, it's over 50% of the human population now live in, in urban and peri-urban areas. So we're kind of divorced from the farming context. Yeah, the guts if, of the cow. If we that, knew the yeah. conditions under which pigs, chickens and cows were kept, yeah. many of us would, we wouldn't have to make any moral argument. Yeah. But if you just see the horrendous industrial conditions and the animal welfare abuses this is not to disparage everybody in the farming industry at all sure. but we have large scale industrial slaughter and we never talk about eating the flesh of animals because yeah. flesh sounds a bit but that's exactly what it is sure. we're eating the flesh of these living entities and so it's a great way of talking about you know morality how far does our moral uh, uh, conscience extend beyond the human world um, and that's what we do in, in certainly my own teaching I also um, co-direct the Centre for Sustainability Equality and Climate Action where we're trying to bring colleagues across the university from engineering public health planning oh, cool. arts humanities social science to try and you know come up with you know new like research tank. I know that's a bit of a dirty word but no it is it's a, it's a think and do tank in the sense yeah. that we do try and get out and, and, and give briefings to Belfast City Council or the all-party group on the, 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 the climate action or indeed go out into the community or actually bring the community into Queen's. That's a big issue that we have at a lot of elite universities like, you know, Queen's is a Russell Group University, part of this research impactful elite universities. I think for a lot of communities in around Belfast, they would never dream of stepping across the threshold of Queen's. Yeah. And I think it's something that we need to do more is to bring and really target working-class communities mm. Now, what I'm going to say here is empirically correct, but it may strike people as very strident, that we need in particular to reach out to the most vulnerable section of our community in Northern Ireland today, which is a young male working class loyalist. They are the most vulnerable in our society in terms of alcoholism, low rates of educational attainment, suicide. We have an epidemic of suicide. Yeah. More people have committed suicide in, in Northern Ireland since 1998 than died during the conflict. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not saying it's all young male Protestants, but we do have an issue there. So I think as part of the civic duty of, of our universities, 
and using perhaps the medium of the planetary crisis and where are we going to get the green jobs, what are the skills we're going to need, there is an opening there to begin a conversation with our communities. And in particular for me, uh, because I am a socialist and a, and a Marxist, we need a working class environmentalism. We need a, an environmentalism and green politics that makes sense to working class people because too often the green message, whether politically and as I say, I'm a former Green Party councillor, or indeed academically, the green idea, climate change and so on, comes across as a woke, urban, educated, guilty middle class phenomenon. And yep. um, that we need to to challenge and move beyond. And then the final thing uh, I, I, I do based at Queen's Matt is that I co-chair the Belfast Climate Commission which is a, an, a, a partnership between Queen's University and Belfast City Council, together with my co-chair the, and the Belfast City Council Climate Commissioner, uh, Debbie Caldwell. And that is a high-level city-based think tank to try and provide the evidence base to inform policymakers what businesses might do. We work with the Belfast Chamber of Commerce. We work with Friends of the Earth. We have members of Extinction Rebellion, members of the Young People Striking for Climate. So it's a broad you know, coalition of different groups from the private, public and civil society sectors to try and move Belfast to a low carbon and climate resilient state. And that's been going now the last two years. And it's some of the best work I've ever done because uh, you can begin to see the impact. You're, you're a bit like the Heineken effect. You're reaching parts of our policy, uh, parts of our community that perhaps we hadn't reached before. So that's the type of work that I, I'm really committed to doing where, yes, it's lab-based and we're doing stuff in the classroom, but actually it's getting academics and our students out uh, at the classroom, out of the university and into real world situations or indeed vice versa, bringing the community into the university. It's really interesting, yeah, because you, know, you think about an academic and even before this conversation, I was like, right, what do I want to talk about with John? What sort of work is he doing? And I picture you, I don't even know if you do this, you know, I picture you in a white coat doing something, dear knows what, in a laboratory or I see you teaching at the front of a classroom and I don't think about you being in the community, working as a connector, spending countless amount of hours, bringing people together, working the dynamics, creating a system and an organization that, yeah. that makes all everything kind of spin around. Talk to me about the white coat aspect of your job, even if it doesn't exist. Like, what are you working on at the minute? What does research look like for you? What is happening there? So the white coat is very a natural science, you know, chemistry or physics. Sure. And, and yeah, but I get where you're coming from. A natural scientist, we, we're like hermits. <laughs> you know, we exist in our own little little spaces. So for me, and if listeners are interested, what I'm currently working on whenever I get the time when I'm not doing all these other things that I'm interested in, I am trying to write a book called The Greatest Story Never Told. And it's basically uh, the story of something that um, has impacted everybody's lives listening here, but most of us don't really think about it. And it's something I mentioned earlier. It's the historical origins and future of economic growth. So I traced it back to colonial Ireland with a man called Sir William Petty in the uh, 16th and 17th century, who was a colonial overlord who was in uh, Cromwell's army. And he is credited within the academic community, certainly amongst economists, to be the first person to come up with what we now would call economic growth. 
in terms of a, a national economy that has to grow and so on. And of course, the point I'm making there is that his interest in doing that in, in colonised Ireland was not in the interest of the indigenous population. It was an imperial project to extract as much wealth to send back to either his own you know, side or whatever. So it's to trace back the origins of something like economic growth that isn't value-free. It has a history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a history that comes you know, attached to imperialism and colonialism. And then to fast forward that to say the modern, completely modern concept of that uh, idea of economic growth has its origins in the Depression era in in America and the post-war period in in Europe, where essentially in the Cold War context, we had to have economic growth in the capitalist West that was better than what was economic growth in the communist East. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it was the economic equivalent of the of the arms race. I heard a really amazing podcast. I might actually link to it if I can remember. And they used the example of supermarkets. And it was like US supermarkets versus communist food yeah. supply. And it became like an agricultural war yeah. and it blew my mind. Yeah, but that's I mean, at, the, at, the, at the macro level, you know, the ways in which even these ideas and the measurements of, of economic growth is part and parcel of the Cold War dynamic, mm. where in particular in uh, the West, so West Germany, France, Britain, Canada and America, organizations that some of you may have heard of, the Organization of Economic, uh, Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, it's explicitly set up to disseminate this new knowledge of capitalist growth in the context of staving off communism. Because you've got to remember that in the post-war period, there are very strong communist parties in Italy and in France. And so economic growth, in a way, a bit like the supermarket analogy, the capitalist West had to show to its populations that liberal democracy and capitalism will deliver you more stuff. Yeah. Look at them having the queue for bread that isn't there exactly. in the country. And even today, that's our common narrative that that was partly what, you know, the Cold War was about, that things were unremittingly bad and grim in the communist East. And actually, it wasn't as bad as many of us think. There was a wonderful book called Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism. And <laughs> I mean, a, there's a headline for it, you. It's a fa- fantastic, <laughs> fantastic book. And it is about, not just about that, but really saying that the uh, equality for women in the communist East is something we never hear about. Mm-hmm. This is not to down, downgrade some of the negative aspects and so on, but it is about you know trying to rehabilitate uh, or, or recalibrate these historical ideas of growth, that people know that growth had its origins in colonial Ireland, that growth in its modern conception is about the Cold War and, and you know, between capitalism and, and communism. So that's the, the geeky stuff that gets me really excited. Yeah. I'm sure most of your listeners have already gone off and made a <laughs> cup of tea, but that's me in the lab, in, in my little hermit yeah. uh, mode, uh, where you're like a pig and muck and just loving this. Yeah. And that's the geeky element. Every academic is one of the most self-exploiting workers in the world. We love what we do, and we probably do it for certainly less than what we're paid for. This is not an argument for reducing our pay, Vice <laughs> Chancellor, but it's a show that we're driven by the intrinsic joy yeah. and creativity of what we do. And I'm sure you're, you're the same in aspects of the work that you do. And we're not driven by instrument. We're only, we're only doing the work to get a wage. The wage is good. We all, we all have to live. But actually, it's the intrinsic value and excitement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what gets me excited, that stuff there. Yeah, yeah. When you were speaking there about how we have a false perception of what the East was like during the Cold War, 
reminded me of, you maybe saw it. There was a mural. It's one of these seminal images burned into my head, you know, as a teenager. Used to be a mural on the Lisburn Road. And it was, I can't, I don't know what you call the statue-like figures that are put on the masts of ships. And it was a, a little girl and she had a, some sort of a gag put over her mouth. And she was frozen in stone. And there was just the words underneath that said, history is written by the winners. Well, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it absolutely <laughs> it is the case. I mean, where you know, do you learn about working class and the crazy, peasants man. throughout history? You know, yeah. the workers who made the, the pyramids. Nobody knows yeah. much about them. It's the pharaohs. And that's why you're absolutely correct that, you know, history is written by the rich. Yeah. Not even the winners. It's the, the elite in every yeah. society and yeah. so on. Now, we have a chance to obviously change history. And that's what really everything we're talking about leads up to, in my view. We're talking about a world historical moment that we're now in. Humanity is facing a very difficult century ahead if we continue on the path that looks like we're still heading down, particularly after the big climate conference in Glasgow last November that was called officially COP26. I call it FLOP26 because of the disaster that no real determined action had come out of it. So my view, technology isn't going to save us. I don't think necessarily global governments are going to save us, but we are the people we've been waiting for. Mm. It's citizens in every great historical change in society. It has always been citizen mobilization, usually about around issues of making the world a better place, mobilized by a sense of injustice. I don't think we're there yet with Western populations on this, uh, but I see elements of it were already beginning prior to the pandemic of that global growth in the young people striking, more and more people getting interested in Extinction Rebellion, trade unions getting interested in this. That's still ongoing. And particularly for folk in Northern Ireland, where we do have a high proportion of people from faith backgrounds, I should say, full disclosure, I speak now not just as a lapsed but completely collapsed Catholic, but <laughs> it was the faith I was brought up in. But I do think there's a particular role and opportunity for members of faith communities to ask themselves, what would Jesus drive? What would Jesus buy? I like that. Uh, and so on. And that that's the, the, the gamut of the, of the voices and interests that we need to discuss and debate and to argue about a different type of organization for our societies. Because I can tell you this, the science is pretty clear. Uh, if we keep going the way we're going, we get to where we're headed. Mm. And it isn't a pleasant outcome. I'm generally a happy person. I'm not depressed, but sometimes I think I'm a carrier just because <laughs> of the knowledge that I, that I have. So I say, as, so my, my final words, I know we're nearing the end, is don't be optimistic. Be hopeful because hope is about agency. You've got to do something. Whereas optimism is this, in my view, lazy sense that you've checked on an issue. Oh, I'm optimistic about it because of technology or it's too late. So we, we neither need that passivity uh, that comes from that negative optimism of techno optimism, or certainly not the negative optimism or the negative, you know, passivity from apocalypticism. And we do need to start having a democratic, involved, robust conversation amongst ourselves as 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 a, as a society and a community around what type of world we want to bring into being, because otherwise it will be organised behind our backs. Mm. I mean, this leads to. The big question, and it is, will be the final question. And it's the one we've been uh, delaying the whole time. 
John, what can we do? What can I do? So I think what you're doing on this podcast is fantastic. You may need to have a separate stream where you're looking at solutions. You can have a, you know, a week on food, on energy, on housing, on transportation, just to show people what they can do individually. So while I think, you know, individual action is necessary, it is insufficient. What are the types of stories from around the world? You know, notes from the front line of climate change in terms of, you know, new housing ideas that are both sustainable and affordable for, you know, for communities like in Vienna and elsewhere. What's going on in Germany with its energy transition and it's going to close down all its coal production within the next decade or so. How is it doing that? It's doing that in a way that includes the trade unions and includes the workers in what's called a just transition. So there's lots of examples from around Europe and the world of what's happening that could potentially be imported or adapted in Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, you know, and so on. So for me, it's about educating yourself. That's the first thing. The second thing is to agitate, <laughs> is that it's not a knowledge by itself will not change the world. You have to discuss, debate, sense, check, and before you make up your mind, open it. Always be open that you may not have the right, you know, end of the stick or your facts are wrong uh, and so on. Uh, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinions, you know, but not their own facts. And then we need to get organized. And that's the mobilization. So for me, those are the three things any citizen that's interested in this needs to do. Educate, agitate and organize. Okay, we're ready to organize. Where do we go? What do we do? How do we do that? So if you are in a workplace that has trade union membership or not, you can organize in your trade union. If you're a member of a, of a faith community, what is your faith community doing on this issue? Is it pension scheme investing in fossil fuels? Are you buying fair trade coffee? Are you actually living your Christian faith in terms of, you know, trying to create a more sustainable world? Because if you're a Christian, you should have a stewardship attitude to this world. It's not our world. You know, we're like stewards of Gondor. You want to go back with your <laughs> Lord of the Rings? We're simply stewards taking care of God's creation. That's a way of getting um, organized. But it is also then opening up our mind that politics does not begin and end with elections or Doug Beatty's latest tweets or what's going on in political parties, important though they are. Politics is also what the young people who are striking at the last Friday of every month over in Corn Market outside Victoria Square, give them support, you know, to show that these young people who don't have a vote and they are, uh, you know, expressing their, their, their views. I think I've got a lot of admiration for what it is they're doing. That's a way of getting organized. You can consider other groups, whether it's Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. But I do think those older social movements, trade unions, and faith communities in particular, I'm particularly interested in, these are big organizations then we have the media, who I think, you know, should hang their head in shame in terms of how they have delayed, obfuscated, sought false balance in, in all of this. What do we need to do with the media? Well, on the one hand is don't criticize the media. Do what you're doing. Be the media. Mm. We don't have to necessarily go to the BBC or UTV and all the rest of it. And that's a way of getting organized. And in all of this, you need to find your happy place. You know, there is something around taking joy in being a fundamentalist and putting a bit of the fun back into that fundamentalist position. I mean, too often, because I'm kind of old in the tooth now and been around and been a political activist a lot of my thinking life, 
You see, too many people that get burnt out and get cynical because they devoted every waking moment of their lives to the cause, whatever that cause yeah. was. We need that determination, but also we need to learn the lessons. And Mama Nature is great at giving us this lesson. The bird that flies at the head of a flock in the V-shape is not the bird that stays there the whole time. They step back and let somebody else take over. We need to take time off. It is not a dereliction of your passion and commitment to this issue or any other issue that you've taken time off, that you've taken pleasure and joy in not being plugged in to the revolutionary matrix in terms of whatever it is you're interested in. That self-care is really, really important to reflect, to enjoy. And in fact, it's an act of revolutionary resistance itself is to have sensual pleasure in a world where everything is being commodified, is to take back ownership of our time, to decolonize our attention from the constant you know, imperialist impulses of social media platforms that literally are colonizing our attention, mm. monetizing and weaponizing our hatred and high emotions. We know the algorithms now tell us, you know, Twitter is based upon high emotion based around hate. The more that happens, boom, boom, boom. Well, get educated on that. That could mean, you know, you move off Twitter, or at least you're aware of what's going on. So I do think there are lots of things that we can we can do. But the most important thing, I think, is education, mm. is a real understanding to pull back the veil. And interesting enough, and here's the academic in me, that is the original Greek meaning of the word apocalypse. In English, we've understood, oh, my God, it's disaster. It's Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It's Elysium or it's some sort of you know, horrible future. Actually, what apocalypse means is a lifting of the veil. It's a revelation. It's about an opportunity, an invitation to think about things differently. And perhaps the last thing I would say is that we need to reverse that typical male mansplaining way we often interpret issues like this. There's a problem. We're going to solve it. And that it's not what we can do for the climate a technology or something like that. We're going to fix it. It's what the climate is doing for us. When we reflect upon its cultural, psychological, economic opportunities. So the climate crisis is an opportunity in that sense of that rehabilitated sense of the apocalypse. And that's where hope also comes from. I was literally about to say thank you for your hope and thank you for everything you shared today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. A pleasure. Yeah. Here ended the secular sermon. <laughs> Absolutely. And big thank you to Queen's for making this one possible. And uh, we'd love to have you on again. More than at happy. At some ha point. Have, cool. have mouth will travel. <laughs> awesome.